I've met many, many, many people who've done something adventurous in their lives and I've never met any of them who say they regret it. But I have met quite a lot of people who have regrets about adventures they did not take. So I think if there's even an urge, then I'd suggest you start with a small little version of it. And, you know, you might absolutely hate it, which is also a good thing because then you can just eliminate that from your life and think, well, I thought I liked adventure. Uh, actually, I don't. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, I talk with writer and adventurer Alistair Humphreys, who's done some epic journeys over the years, like biking around the world and rowing across the Atlantic, though he's perhaps best known for promoting the much humbler task of micro-adventures, which involve normal people having short outdoor experiences close to home, often during a weekend or right in the middle of a work week, when you might decide to, say, sleep in the forest outside of the city for a night. Micro-adventures are meant to be a short, simple, and cheap escape that can deepen our days at a time when so much of life is defined by sitting in some city and staring at a computer screen. Now, Alistair and I talk about micro-adventures towards the end of our interview, but at the heart of our conversation is another counterintuitive adventure described in his new book, My Midsummer Morning. Specifically, his decision amid the domestic duties of raising his family to become an amateur again, which he achieves by learning how to play the violin from scratch and then busking for money on a walk across Spain. Now, I know that this feat might sound like a stunt of sorts, and I guess it is, but it's also a thoughtful examination of how we can come to define adventure in new ways and make the most of our days on Earth as we grow older. This great little conversation is brought to you by Tortuga, which makes backpacks and backpack accessories. This winter, I actually used the Tortuga Outbreaker Day Pack to create little lightweight micro-adventures where I left my main pack, the set out at the hotel, and use the smaller pack for multi-day motorbike or trekking adventures in Sumatra. You can get a peek at the set out in the outbreaker at rolfpotscom slash Tortuga, where you can get 10% off all your orders with the promo code DEVIATE. Speaking of my winter travels, I took that trip with the help of my other sponsor, Airtrex, who connected Sumatra with places like Sri Lanka and the Republic of Georgia on an around-the-world vagabonding itinerary, which is, of course, what Airtrex specializes in. To learn more about Airtrex, check out their flight planning tools at Airtrex.com. All right, here's Alistair Humphreys and I talking about how to make adventure a part of your life in a way that deepens your experience of life. Your new book is about adventure, as as all your books are. Um, and like all good travel books, it's also sort of an examination of how to live, how to spend your time, how to navigate existence in a, in a life when time is short and limited. But unlike some of your other books, this feels uh, less like an Alistair Humphreys book than sort of a Rolf Potts adventure. You, you, your premise is, is much smaller scale than you usually go. It's, it's walking across Spain and busking. And I want to get to the specifics of that adventure in a second. But first, for the, for the benefit of my audience who might not know you, um, let's talk about your history as an adventurer and how you got into it and how you sort of became renowned as, uh, as an adventure guy. Uh, renowned is very kind and an over-exaggerated phrase, but I'll, I'll take anything anything I can get. Um, thank you. I started by, as a student at university in Britain, loving reading travel literature, so stories of crazy men and women exploring the world, doing mad stuff, 
usually dying, but that all added to the story. And that got me really hooked on the idea of wanting to travel, wanting to explore and wanting somehow to try to become a writer. So um, I didn't have the imagination to write a novel. So instead, I got on my bicycle and I set off to cycle around the world. And I spent four years cycling 46,000 miles around the world on a budget of about $10,000. And what I realized after four years of traveling the world was really how little of the world I'd seen. So that just got me hooked on more. And I then spent the next decade or so trying hard to do big, tough, difficult expeditions. That's what really excited me. So I, um, I've walked across Southern India. I rode across the Atlantic Ocean. I um, walked across the empty quarter desert. I crossed Iceland um, on foot. And these sort of human-powered, physically difficult, slow, simple expeditions was what drove me for quite a few years trying to talk about them, take photographs, and, and write about them as well. I'm curious about that first. Actually, I'm curious about all your adventures. But the first adventure, what was the driving force? Uh, you know, apart from being interested in travel literature, what made you decide to take your your measly ten thousand dollars and start pedaling around the world? Um, I wanted to go see the world, as a lot of young people do, whether that's backpacking or working abroad or whatever. So I just I had that curiosity and that uh, itchy feeling that there must be more excitement to the world than the small little sphere I've grown up in. The second part of it was I, as a student, I'd started to get really interested in trying to push myself physically. So I started to enjoy mountain marathons and camping out and physical stuff like that. And being a student, I didn't have much money, so it needed to be a cheap journey, hence the bicycle. So a combination of wanting to travel the world do so in a difficult way and do so in a slow, simple, cheap way led to the idea of trying to see how far I can make my money last on a bicycle with a tent. Yeah, it, it's sort of a hardcore version of what I did, what I did about the same age. I, I lived in a van. It's been 25 years ago, and I really, really stretched my budget. I think I did $5,000 in one year, so I think you actually have me beat. $10,000 for four years is pretty impressive. Well, that, that's because uh, banana sandwiches are cheaper than gas. But I, I read you, yeah, I read your, um, when I first read your books, I, I felt a lot resonated. So I think we essentially did the same thing, but in slightly different forms, really. Yeah, and, and even philosophically, and, and some ideas that, that come through your new book, which I'll get to in a second, um, share a lot of the same questions with me, like how, how best we should spend the time that we're allotted on this earth. Um, now, at one point, did you become sort of a professional adventurer? I mean, you did. <laughs> you have India and the Empty Quarter. I actually remember f sort of following you on social media when you walked or, and, and wrapped it across Iceland. So um, how did you make that transition from being a, a young wanderer into someone who is invited to speak about adventuring in, in various places in the world? Well, while I was cycling around the world I was trying to raise money for a kids charity so I did about 300 talks in those four years to raise money for this charity and do 300 talks you hopefully get quite good at talking um, so when I got home and I was trying to write my first book I thought that a way to try and pay for my life whilst I was writing that book was just go and talk to a load of schools so mostly elementary schools primary schools um, and I just went and did hundreds of those talks at first for free then for 50 pounds I just kept squeezing up my fee little by little till people started complaining and gradually over a few years I managed to 
make that a sustainable way of living a, a pretty cheap um simple life but earning enough from the talks to pay for my writing which is what i loved and to save up for the next trip which was what i needed in order to have the next story so it just grew from doing huge numbers of very cheap talks and then gradually starting to do a few magazine articles um but for for at least well until about five years ago um, my split was always that i earned about 90 percent of my money from speaking and only 10 percent from writing I wish it was the other way around, but I haven't cracked that yet. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, it's, it's, a, it's a strange time to be making money off of writing. So th- those of us who do are, are very lucky. Yes. Um, did, you, did you have like a, a philosophy advent- of adventure that developed during this time as you, were, as you were talking about it and people were asking you about it and you, as you were doing it? Uh, what was the philosophical core of your adventurous life? The philosophical core that drove my adventures was – quite ascetic and borderline masochistic i was really curious to push myself physically and mentally as hard as i could and i think this came about from feeling that my life growing up it had been perfectly fine but it just felt a bit soft and a bit ordinary and not very outstanding in any way and i wanted to through these hard physical trips i thought that i could prove myself to myself I think I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder I was a bit of an angry young man and I wanted to try and carve out a little space in the world and say yeah this is this is what I've endured and I feel finally a little bit more self-confident from that Uh, so I think I was just a typical angry young man in some ways well in this book you you it's a different I guess there's there are some aesthetic elements but the adventure is a little bit more psychic. It's about busking. It's about learning how to play the violin and walking across Spain only with the money that you make from playing that violin. But it's also tied into Lori Lee, uh, which which I've read before. Uh, his books are, uh, his travel book is is one of your favorites. So how did the inspiration for this trip um, evolve from reading about Lori Lee to actually you taking violin lessons and, and committing to doing it? So I first read Laurie Lee's book when I was a student. I was in, uh, I was a student at Oxford, and I was supposedly set for this nice, sensible, grown-up life as a good graduate. And I read this book, and it just was so poetic and exciting. It was a, the story is a young British guy in the 1930s walks through Spain, playing his violin, having very simple adventures, sleeping on hills hanging out in bars and it's lovely it's really nice writing what's the name of the book the book is called as i walked out one midsummer morning okay and it's a it's it's a fantastic book it's not particularly famous but i love it and for about 15 years i kept reading that book thinking i'd love to go do a trip like this what a simple beautiful slow adventure but i can't go and do that because i can't play the violin or any other instrument and and actually, the idea of performing is one of my great fears. I hate karaoke. I hate dancing at weddings. So I just can't do that sort of stuff. So I kept shelving the idea and going off to do all these other things, rowing oceans and stuff. But over time, I started to notice that the the, the reason I was trying to do these big adventures, to do things that was new and exciting and difficult and daunting, if you do all of that stuff for 20 years, you hopefully get quite good at it. And so in many ways, by now, I start to lose this, the thrill and the uncertainty and the risk of failure. And in, in a weird way, I was just kind of 
in a rut, in a comfort zone of, of my own making. So I decided I wanted to try and look very differently at what adventure meant. So that led me to thinking about how can I challenge myself? How can I be vulnerable and risk failure and have that excitement, the uncertainty of not knowing what will happen? How can I get that back into my life? And that's when I thought, what I really need to do is something that scares me, which is play the violin. <laughs> so I began violin lessons. I had seven months of lessons, which I learned was far, far, far less than I actually needed. I, uh, Did I you know greatly... violin at all at the beginning? No, I'd never touched one in my life till my first violin lesson. And that oh. first violin lesson, I came out of it just thinking, man, I'm going to starve. This, this is hard. I completely underestimated how hard it would be. But I felt that it was important to do the trip with no money, no wallet, no credit card, in order that the violin played the pivotal part. I needed to be at the center of the activity to make it important. If, I, you know, if I'd had money, then the violin would have just been a little game I played. But by only having the violin to earn my money, it became urgent and important and therefore <laughs> far more frightening and exciting and entertaining. Well, it's interesting how this dovetails with the adventure, and, and you write some things that make a lot of sense. You say, as adults, we rarely learn fresh skills or dare ourselves to change direction. We urge our children to be bold risk takers, to show grit and open themselves to new experiences. We encourage them to try things like learning musical instruments, but grown-ups, we hide behind the way we've always done things. We become so boring. Adults are ashamed to be novices, so we shy away from it. We draw comfort from being competent, even in narrow and unchanging niches. So we plateau and settle for the identity we have. We don't stretch ourselves because that risks failure and pain. In fact, it guarantees it, for the pain of being stretched is how we grow. You are vulnerable when you begin something new because you are exposing your weaknesses. I had not been so incompetent for decades. So um, <laughs> how did this dovetail? When, when you left for Spain, how were you feeling about the prospect of busking your way across Spain? I was feeling terrified. I was thinking, this is the most stupid idea I've ever had. I'm going to starve to death. Of course, no one's going to give me any money. I can barely play this stupid instrument. I'm worse than a six-year-old. It's a ridiculous idea. But... Um, but at the same time, I also felt thrilled and excited and nervous, just like I did. And I'm sure you remember the first time you get on a jet plane to a strange new continent and you have that feeling of this is brilliant. But, oh, my goodness, what have I set in motion? I had that thrill of travel and adventure back that I got quite jaded to from having spent so many years traveling to so many places. Yeah, I actually, years ago, I, I in Latin America, I decided the, the most daring thing I could do was try and learn how to salsa and samba and merengue dance. Um, <laughs> and it never became a book, but it was a similar, it was a similar part of like vulnerability and exposure and like, what the hell am I doing this? Um, and so uh, I can, I can really respect this approach to adventure. Um uh, and, and then what could have just been a stunt, you know, it, this book could have been a stunt, yet it's also connected to the fact that you aren't an angry 22-year-old anymore, that you're a guy with a family and a couple of kids, and that um, I think this is something I can relate to. I don't have kids, but um, when you decide to live a life less ordinary, when you li decide to live a life of adventure, it doesn't really absolve you from the core questions of life and how you're best supposed to live it. And you wrote that um, 
that there's some contradictions in this adventurous life versus the d- domestic life. You, you write that since settling down to my family life, life, I had lost my identity and washed up lonely and empty. The years I spent trying to outride and outsuffer everyone, charging madly at the world, were not a good model for the next 40 years. So it really sounds like you can't be that angry young man forever. So what was going on, what was going on in your life at this time? What were you, what were you examining as you walked across Spain? Well, I think most of the examining was done before going to Spain in the in the years when um, so when I first became a dad and I was torn between the 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 love and the excitement and the duty and responsibility of this new side of my life versus the carefree vagabond independent spirit which I'd been so carefully harnessing and nourishing for decades and I'd spent my everything about me was oh that's al humphreys oh yeah he's the adventure guy who travels the world and does all this stuff and isn't the sort of guy who's settled down in suburbia with a mortgage and a couple of kids and i i found that change really um hard because i i felt that i was still the same me but i now had these responsibilities so i really struggled for quite some time to work out how to try and get any sort of adventurous me with responsible uh, dad and husband um, and I spent quite a few years trying to the idea of micro adventures these small local adventures trying to use that as a way of harnessing it and then my kids got a bit older and it became possible to take a month away to go do the Spain trip and one of the reasons I wanted to do it was to try and demonstrate to my children the sort of thing I always tell them I was telling them to be curious and to be wild and to be bold and to take risks. I was telling them that, but I wasn't showing them that. So one thing I really wanted to do from this Spain journey, which is only very short by my standards, was to just try and live really fully, pour myself into being curious, wild and bold for a month. And hopefully through that, figure out trying to set some sort of good example of being both adventurous and responsible. Was part of your frustration tied into the fact that you your public persona is as an adventure guy, and then suddenly you're you're washing dishes and changing diapers, and you don't feel like the adventure guy? Yeah, one of my huge frustrations and difficulties was this loss of identity I had. I've made my career out of adventure, and suddenly I wasn't doing adventure at all, or certainly not the way I defined adventure. So I I lost I I felt like a fraud. I felt I'd lost my self-respect and I felt the only way I was, I was going to continue to pay the bills was by telling people about the gl- my glory days, to be that washed up guy at the bar telling someone about the good old days. And so I felt that loss hugely. And I suspect that a lot of adventurous people who become parents struggle with the same sort of thing. But I think mine was exacerbated a little bit by the fact that my entire career and um, the way I see myself was very much wrapped up in the free spirit adventurer package. So I found these the two parts sat very uncomfortably next to each other. You, you talk about the concept of kleos. Is am I pronouncing that correctly? The the old uh, Greek idea. Yeah, sounds good to me. Yeah, and so how did how did you relate to that idea? I think I think it's something to do with the idea that if Achilles fights the war and dies gloriously, then it's one thing. But when he comes home and returns to his domestic life, somehow it's at odds with who he used to be in the war. Yeah, your Cleos is the old way of, it's not just not just the feats that you accomplish, but 
the uh, the sort of aura with which those tales are told. Um, so, and Achilles is the he is the ultimate example of Cleos, and of course he went off and fought his wars and did all sorts of heroic stuff, but unfortunately got shot in the heel and died, and therefore left behind a very sad wife and son. And I was used to think he was a bit of an idiot for having done that uh, but I noticed when I became domesticated myself I actually quite envied Achilles going for the wild option of getting shot in the heel and dying and I think that was pr- perhaps a bit of a reckless response of mine to suddenly feeling quite constrained in my adventures and it took me quite a few years of early parenthood to settle everything down and filter things out and try and work out Okay, there must be some sort of way that I can be not get shot in the heel and die, but also not completely destroy my family. How can I try my best to live adventurously every day? And that that thinking about that led me to start thinking about adventure as being broader than just travel per se. So whether that's micro adventure things or whether it's learning the musical instrument, there's there are more ways I'm starting to feel that you can live adventurously. Well, I want to get to micro-adventures eventually because that's something that you've written about and talked about quite a bit, and I think my audience will really be interested in that. But I'm curious to know if you were tempted to double down on the adventures that came before, to find an even more intrepid adventure, to somehow get another story that can make you feel more authentic. Was that a temptation? (laughs) Um, Not really, actually, because I felt... And so another of my, I think I seem to have had lots of self-identity problems, but one of my problems in life is that the biggest adventure I've ever done in my life uh, finished when I was 29. And I knew from the moment I finished spending four years cycling around the world that I would never do anything as big and epic as that ever again. So, so I never really was trying to go down the route of trying to go faster, higher, further than the ones before. I think that's the route to... Well, ultimately, in the adventure world, it leads to you dying, essentially, doing something stupid and dying. Um, and I'm, despite perhaps what the, the tone of where I've been speaking, I'm not actually an adrenaline daredevil. I was never trying to do adventures to be, prove myself beyond what other people could do. So I was never actually that drawn to trying to do bigger and harder and tougher things. I've always been more interested in doing a variety of journeys and traveling to different places and different ways and being a beginner and and the learning process of doing new things that's always appealed to me much more i really like the idea of being a beginner um yet interestingly in this book you have the challenge of of learning the violin you have the challenge of walking across spain but also the challenge of of what you call untangling the knots in your head which uh which means that this book resonates on several levels i think so let's let's go into the journey itself what was it like to, to, to wander into Spain and take out that violin for the first time? <laughs> um, well, it was nice. It was really nice, actually, to be beginning an adventure in a country that's so safe and comfortable and familiar and easy as Spain. So uh, I f- it felt quite nice just to arrive in Spain. Like, ah, I'm not here on holiday. This is actually an adventure. <laughs> and so I enjoyed sp- being in Spain. You speak Spanish, right? Yeah, I do speak Spanish. So that was really nice to be able to do a trip. And the, the entire trip, I didn't speak any English. Um, and so that's that really always a nice part to any journey. So I loved, being, I loved the fact that I was in Spain. Um, but the first morning when I got out my... So the first... 
I booked the plane ticket and I booked an Airbnb and I arrived and did that. And then the next morning I walked out this Airbnb and emptied out my final coins onto a park bench and then walked away. And that was it. I now had no money at all for a month until I got to hopefully Madrid. And that was when the nerves started to kick in, this sense of uncertainty and nervousness and vulnerability and having to get out my violin and play for the very first time. Um, that was a horrible morning. I just paced the streets, anxious, um, looking for coins in the gutter. I was so frightened. I was really thinking, this is the most stupid idea you've ever had. You've really gone and done it this time. <laughs> so how did you deal with the fear? What did, what did you do next? Well, it's quite the, what's quite nice about traveling by yourself um, is I'm sure you're agree with this as well is the fact that you just have to deal with stuff you're in some place where nobody knows your name and if you want to solve x you have to do it you can't hide so eventually after enough procrastinating i just found a sunny little plaza opened up my violin case and prepared to play i'd never played in front of anyone except my teacher before in my life i was so nervous sweat pouring down my flanks but i just realized well there's no other option. I've just got to do this. So I started to play and it was mortifying. It was so embarrassing. Um, and I, and I'm so bad. And I thought no one's ever going to give me any money. This, this is awful. And I was just trying to think, how can I find an excuse to get out of this with some sort of shred of dignity intact, but I couldn't think of an excuse. So I just kept playing. And is like, what's going through your head as you're playing? Is, is there a psycho psychology to busking? <laughs> I think I think it's mostly well firstly some musical skill helps but beyond that there's a lot of psychology there's and I learned I really enjoyed learning this over the next month you know, where to position your instrument the times of day trying to get eye contact with people um, which sort of people are worth bothering with and which ones are are, are not worth not worth the time so that side of it was really interesting um, but also it's just interesting how my response to people. So people would walk past and they'd either laugh at me because I'm bad or completely ignore me, most people, or some would sort of wrinkle their brows and frown at me. And although these are total strangers who are just crossing my path for two seconds, they're the only human connections I'm having in the day. So I'm sort of feeding off those more than they are. So when someone smiled at me, that would make me feel great and encourage me to keep playing. And if someone frowned at me, I'd think, oh no, nobody loves me. So it's quite a, being on your own when you're traveling is quite an emotional up and down anyway. It's a accentuated up and down, I think. So it was a bit of a, a roller coaster. And I was really thinking that I was doomed. But eventually I earned my first coin, my first ever coin. I'm now a professional musician. And that was such a relief, a thrill, excitement, um, amusement. Um, it was the full bundle of emotions, which is the, the reward you often get when you put yourself in some sort of risky travel position to get that reward of it when it all works out how you'd hoped it might do. You look kind of British. Was that was that helpful or a hindrance as a busker? <laughs> I do look very British. <laughs> um, I think actually it was a help. You know, I, I clearly looked foreign i'm not i don't look spanish i had my big backpack by my feet so i think that made me a slight object of curiosity and people were like oh this is interesting some guy in our small little town without any tourists what's he doing here so i think that did spark people's curiosity um 
I also did make me aware, quite aware of just how people's snap judgments are quite important and and the ease that I have being a white male made compared to if I'd been lots of other people who I think would have found it much harder to turn up in a little village, play the music really badly and then try and sleep on the park bench for a few hours. So I think I, I definitely got off very lightly from that side of things. Um, and it certainly helped just as I've always found on my travels, if you if you look different and you're doing something that's different and you're a little bit out of the ordinary, then people respond to that. And from that comes the the kindness and curiosity of travel. Is there a certain type of person who's more likely to give than others? Because as I was, as I was reading it, I felt a twinge of guilt at all the buskers I've walked by without giving money to before. Yeah, so, people so- like you would be terrible. I would, I'd see you coming, I'd think, nah, this guy is not for me. Um, yeah, I think there's definitely the, the certain demographics. And that, that was a really interesting process, learning who they were. My ideal, the ideal person was a... A, a retired gentleman, so maybe about 60, 70 years old, uh, ideally on their own, walking by, they were the most likely to just drop a drop a 50 cents or a euro and walk on with not no fuss, no desire for conversation, just a little gesture. Um, so generally the older people were the best. Um, and uh, the younger down you get, the, the more self-absorbed and busy and addicted to phones they were. So it was, it was more the elder people who were, who were the kind ones for me. Yeah, I, I remember you, you noted that in your book, that the young people are just, they're looking in their screen. Um, and not, I don't want to disparage the younger generation, but I was thinking about my first vagabonding trip 25 years ago and how a lot of times I would just talk to people because they were in my vicinity. Um, and these days we spend so much time s- staring into our black mirror that it, it seems like um, I think something like doing busking really would attune you to human nature and certain organic interactions that have kind of been lost. Mm, yeah, very much so. And it's one of the the great skills of traveling the world is learning the nonverbal communication, you know, particularly often in places when you can't speak the language with people, or in my case, because I had a violin stuck under my chin and I was soaring away just trying to communicate via eye contact and gestures is is a really subtle nuanced side of travel that i really enjoy but in terms of the phone i one thing one of the highlights of the month for me was just doing a deliberate digital detox so to for a whole month with no phone calls no emails no scrolling through the sport websites and that uh, that was great and i also for the first time ever on a trip i didn't take a reading book except for the Laurie Lee book, which I knew very well anyway. I normally take loads of books, but I took no books, no music to listen to, no social media. I just wanted to see if I could manage a whole month just with an empty brain and whatever was happening around. And it was hard, but that was one of the real highlights of the trip. Yeah, when we're talking about ideas of reframing adventure, that weirdly seems like a, a... A very salient idea this day and age is to unplug for a whole month. Um, you know, when I started traveling 20 years ago, that didn't seem that strange. But uh, now it's just it's such a part of our lives. And having traveled in countries like Sumatra and Sri Lanka, where local people also have smartphones, it really is a different square one for human er- interaction than um, than it was in the past. So uh, I would imagine that that would affect things. Were there, were there times when you were afraid you might go hungry when you were walking onto a village and thinking, oh man, this village only has 40 people in it. There's no way I can, I can raise money here. 
Yes, I had a I had a rule to myself. I I think a part of my masochistic youth continues because I had a rule that whenever I earned money, I had to spend it all immediately. So I was not allowed to save up any money for for the next day. So that meant every town I arrived in, I was I had zero money and I was hungry again. Um, so that that kept the the element of edge and excitement to the trip, but it was also quite dispiriting. Often I'd arrive at a village which on my map looked as though it would have a few cafes and a few hundred people, but it turned out to be really small and empty, and then there'd be nothing to do except just to walk on out the other side. And I'd go onto half rations and double miles till I till I um, till I could find another place to play. But you know this trip. To my astonishment, did not turn into a hardship trip at all. I was so bad at busking that I really, really thought it was going to be quite an endurance task and a struggle against hunger. But actually, I couldn't believe how well I did. I earned in a month. I earned 120 euros, and you can live like a king for 120 euros if you're willing to sleep outside every night and you're not paying for transport. So I actually had plenty of food, and uh, occasionally, even to my absolute astonishment i could afford a small little cup of coffee on a couple of days which is wonderful because i could not only just revel in the ultimate luxury of having earned my own coffee from busking the violin but also i could hide from the spanish sun for four hours of peace and quiet and also i could charge up my camera batteries so it was actually a luxury joyful trip rather than a hardship mission i imagine it would make you appreciate coffee in a way that you haven't before Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, that's I, one of the things I really love about my deliberately minimalist travel is just learning to really be grateful for the taste of food. Were you ever tempted to cheat? Um, what do you mean? Cheat? How could I? What cheat? What sort of cheating? I'm always tempted to cheat. Well, to uh, yeah. to to, uh, to file a euro uh, in in your pocket a day away for a, for a long stretch of road where there uh-huh. were villages, or to put your bank card in your sock <laughs> and and buy a bunch of whiskey in in a town. I mean, <laughs> did this ever cross your mind? Um, not it, too much, because I quite actually I quite enjoyed that the the fear and the hunger. I was quite enjoy it was with it was nerve wracking, but once I'd earned my first money that first day the sheer terror of the trip went and from then on it just became nice exciting butterflies like pre-match nerves really so i quite enjoyed all that i did however completely cheat in one way which i would have been disgusted at for most of my youth which was that i hitchhiked a few times um this was supposed to be a 500 mile hike to madrid and in my youth i would have been absolutely militant that therefore i must hike every single inch of the way properly otherwise it's pathetic and doesn't count but in deliberate rebellion against my youthful self one day i stuck out my thumb and hitchhiked just to just to make myself chill out a bit in life and as always i loved it i love hitchhiking it's such a great conversation starter so i did a bit of deliberate hitchhike cheating on the trip you talk a little bit about the idea of solitude versus loneliness. Uh, you you run into a guy, I, I guess, sort of a, a, a social media fan named Marcos at some place, a guy who knew you or knew of you. Yes. Um, so how did how did your relationship to people go? I mean, sometimes there's bus people who just walk by you and they're not interested in you at all in a busker. But it sounds like you did make some connections. How did how did the the, the human aspect of your journey develop? 
I, I think I've got a bit spoilt from traveling in all sorts of parts of the world in that when people in a place are kind and invite me to their house and give me loads of food and a shower, I've experienced that joyful kindness so often that I kind of almost take it for granted and expect it in a way, which is terrible. But, um, and I'm sure you've had countless experiences of that yourself, but it, it didn't really happen in Spain for all sorts of possible reasons. So it was only one occasion. So generally the kindness in Spain came from just fleeting interactions. You know, someone smiling as I, as the walking down the street. So next time you walk past a busker, Rolf, you should at least smile at them. <laughs> it, it was, it really connected with me. Like, ah, they, 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 I'm here. I'm a, I'm a human. So small acts of kindness, little people chatting every so often with me uh, quite often when I was hiking if I walked down a road a car would stop and they'd have a little chat with me and just those brief connections are really nice when you're uh, on a trip by yourself um, and it was only one night so the guy who um, who knew of me via the internet which was a weird <laughs> experience for me to have reached internet fame anyway he knew of me so he He'd done quite a lot of cycle touring himself. Um, so he invited me to his house and had a shower and clean clothes. And uh, his, I basically ate all the food in his mum's fridge. So that was a, a lovely uh, 24-hour break from the road. It occurs to me that this really is a different um, adventure playground. Maybe playground is not the right, right world. A different adventure realm than it may have been a century or two ago. Because not only do you have the, situ the situation where a Spanish guy sort of recognizes you and, and gives you lots of food, but this is sort of underpins the, the balance that you explore in the book, that 100 or 200 years ago, an adventurer who traveled to Siberia wouldn't just be able to fly home one morning and resume his domestic life. Um, so d d d does it feel like even over the course of your adventure career that the stakes of the adventure or the conveniences and idiosyncrasies of adventure have changed? Um, not particularly. I think most things I've ever done, I've always been aware that I'm just playing a game. So cycling around the world, if the absolute worst came to the worst, I could have phoned up some British embassy and said, help. And they'd have got me home and then given me a bill or something. So I've always known that I'm kind of playing at it. And that was one of the most powerful experiences of row rowing across the Atlantic Ocean, because that was... 45 days and nights of full commitment once you're in the middle of the ocean you are properly committed and however miserable you are and i was very miserable you're just out there and you've just got to do it and that was the closest i had to the experience of what it would have been like to be a, a viking or someone exploring siberia or captain scott on the way to the south pole of that full-on commitment and everything else i've ever done has been playing a game really and a lot of adventure is quite a strange thing because this, the sort of tough adventures we've been talking about a bit, a lot of them are just a game that some of us choose to play because our ordinary life is so warm and comfortable and luxurious, which for the last million years of human history would have been an absolutely insane proposition. So I'm very aware that um, like sport, we play it as though it matters, but the in reality, it doesn't really Um and I, I was aware of that in Spain. I was trying my hardest to to not fail, to not go hungry, etc. But I was in Spain, you know. I'm. I was certainly was not going. It wasn't a life or death issue. Yeah, and a, a lot of the joy of the simple moments of walking, of of of, very, of going very slowly, of not necessarily doing a rowing across the ocean adventure, but just walking every day, 
using your own locomotion comes through. And I was reading Pico Iyer recently, and it sort of reminded me of your book. He says, traveling, we are born again, able to return at moments to a younger and more open kind of self. Traveling is a way to reverse time to a small extent, and traveling is a way of surrounding ourselves as in childhood with what we cannot understand. So keeping in mind that you were traveling as an older man, as, as, as a family man, and not just an angry 22-year-old, um, what kind of joys did you find on the road? And by the time you got to the end, what had you learned from this, from this adventure? One of the reasons I was trying to do this trip was to untangle in my head a lot of the frustrations I'd felt about trying to be an adventurer, but also trying to be a, a, a father. And so I really cherished the time out on the road, the month of hiking and camping out and swimming in rivers. I really cherished that simplicity of experience, which reminded me of so many months and months and months of doing similar things around the world and made me very grateful for those. But it also made me aware that I've done that sort of stuff so often and I love it and it's very much part of who I am, but I don't necessarily need to keep doing more of it. You know, once you've had a slice of cake, um, do things improve if you eat the entire cake? <laughs> Often not. You know, it's a Erling Kager, his recent book about walking, he describes how um, from his walks to the South Pole, he talks about how one square of chocolate tastes much nicer than the whole bar, which is true. And then he goes on to say, and yet... I still eat the whole bar, <laughs> which is human nature. So I think the point of that part is that by the end of the trip, I'd come to some sort of peace with thinking, wow, this traveling, wandering, vagabonding has been incredible. I've been so appreciative of all that. I've done so much, but now my life has changed and therefore it's time for me to change the way I look at adventuring, whether that's playing the violin in a plaza or climbing a tree once a month. But I, I felt ready to move on to the next phase of living adventurously in my life. You said in the book, for too long I had thought adventure was life, but actually life is the adventure, and that's not the same thing at all. What do you, what do you mean by that? I, I think what I mean by that is that I spent years thinking that I was only who I was if I could be as good as the next adventure. What's next? What next is the question you always get asked. I always felt the need to have an an adventure that was bigger and better and more exciting for the next thing. Um, and all of my life when I wasn't on adventure was focused about somehow getting me back out there, back out into adventure. And I think the way I am now is a bit more rounded approach of just trying to have the attitude of adventure and the, the mental approach that I take to my travels to try and apply that to my daily life whether I'm going for a run or writing or playing um, in the garden with my children or just trying to schedule in short little overnight escapes the occasional swim in a river trying to just fit this feeling of enthusiasm and curiosity in around all the margins of busy real life it's interesting how even though like the stakes of your adventures have always been bigger than mine we've sort of had parallel travel lives and I very much remember being not a necessarily angry, but maybe an anxious 20-something, um, traveling the world and trying to figure out my place in it and trying to make the most of my time. You, you have an interesting epigram in your book that says, use the hours, don't count them. 
And it feels to me like that could be an epigram that means something differently at age 22 than it does at age 40. So how do you how do you reconcile that maxim now? Use the honors, don't count them. <laughs> um, I spent quite a lot of my recent frustrated years, I suppose the early parenthood years, being so incredibly frustrated that time was passing by and I had X, Y and Z to do and I still hadn't written a masterpiece novel and I was just so furious at time galloping away that I didn't actually enjoy any of those hours or even do anything particularly useful with many of them and what I'm trying to do now is to worry less about how fleeting they may or may not be and just to try and fill the hours with this spirit of trying to do things well in an adventurous spirit so just trying to use my time rather than fretting about my time seems a much more much better way to spend the hours yeah you know i think there's a time when you're young that you realize you don't have to live the prescribed life you don't have to live the life you think you're supposed to live and you can create a life for yourself but seeking to live that life doesn't absolve you from the same problem of of having to uh, having to use your hours in a meaningful and, and rich way, you know, just because you you know that distinction doesn't mean you're going to perfect that. Um, so that it was it was really interesting to see this this shift in your adventure thinking as the course of this book played out. Um, do you still play the violin? <laughs> I um, I did a talk in Las Vegas a few months ago and to a thousand people in the Bellagio. My biggest ever gig <laughs> it was some sort of software conference <laughs> and I played my violin at the end of it. And at the end, a lady came up and gave me a dollar bill. I actually huh. made, th I made three dollars in tips. I, I framed the dollar bill here and I figured that was a good place to retire. So I played Vegas and I pretty much retired now. Yeah. Just, just like Elvis, your, your late career, <laughs> your late career um, in music, although it was much more pinched than Elvis career happened at Vegas. That's, that's awesome. Wow. And we both like mashed potato. Right. right. Um, well, I guess you don't like this question. I want to talk about micro adventures in a second. But one question you don't like is what's your next adventure? But I feel tempted to ask you what's what's next for you? Well, so I, I, um, I don't actually know. For the first time in my life, I don't know what's is next for me in terms of adventures and for for all of my ever since I loved adventure age 18 I've had a huge catalog of plans and to-do lists and I think part of my trying to calm down a bit in life means I actually have no to-do list now so I don't actually know what my next adventure is going to be um, I'm trying to give up flying which is a hard thing for an addicted uh, traveler uh, but that will very much affect the adventure plans that I come up with. Um, I'm trying to do things that can show other normal people, normal people with real lives, of which I'm now part of that uh, category, to show those people that it's possible to have adventure and to do exciting things and still have a real life. So trying to fit those sort of things into into some sort of plan that I can write about is what, what I'll do next. But I haven't yet had a masterstroke idea. Are, do you ever uh, sort of uh, regret having being such a public adventurer, being someone who 
encourages other people to adventure? Because I, I would think that there's an alternative version of your life where you can just take your kids to Sumatra and be a surf bum for a couple of years. Are, are you ever tempted to do that? Oh, man, I'd love to do that. Yeah, but uh, my wife has put up with me for many years and she, she thinks most things I do are very stupid. <laughs> she keeps me nicely grounded. Uh, but she also thinks the idea of going to be a surf bum in some arch is very stupid. <laughs> uh, so um, we have, so that's not going to happen. Right. And so perhaps, <laughs> perhaps, uh, and, it, and it occurs to me that she could probably write a parallel book to this, you know, about being, uh, about being your husband, but uh, being, being, <laughs> the, the, being the adventurer's wife, um, but it, it just seems like you're in a per perfect position now since you don't have any big picture adventures planned, which seems in tune with sort of the epiphanies that you had on this trip, that it's a good time for micro adventures and micro adventures is something that you have um, promoted in the past and it's really something you're quite known for. So for my audience who might um, be thinking about your adventures and thinking, yeah, I don't have a month to walk across Spain, I don't have time to row across the Atlantic, um, define micro adventures and how they can enhance people's lives. So I, after doing big adventures for quite a lot of years, I noticed that a lot of people would say, essentially what you just said, oh, I'd love to do this, but I don't have enough time. I don't have enough money. I don't have a canoe. I don't have a $400 raincoat. So some genuine legitimate obstacles in life and then quite a lot of mental excuses that we all make up all the time. So I was trying to work out how I could try and encourage people to have adventures. And there seemed to be two options. Either you just shout at people and say, well, just quit your job and get divorced and you can do it. <laughs> and that's quite, which is valid. That would work, but it's a bit, perhaps a bit drastic. <laughs> so it seemed that the better option was to try and find a way to squeeze adventure around these barriers to say, okay, so you don't have enough time to do this, but you could still do this. You can't afford to do this. You could still do this. So I've been trying to distill down the spirit of my adventures into just short, simple, cheap, local adventures. Um, for example, um, finishing work one evening at five o'clock, instead of getting bogged down by the nine to five, you finish at five o'clock and go sleep on a hill for a night under the stars, get back to your desk for nine o'clock the next morning or cycling a lap of your hometown which i guarantee you would see things you've never seen before in your life and if you can be an explorer outside your hometown perhaps you don't need to go to sumatra to do that or um i've i've been very busy recently so i've just scheduled into my calendar for the first day of every month to go climb a tree it pops up on my uh, google calendar says hey go climb a tree so every month on the first day i just pause quickly head out, climb my local tree, look around, see how the world's changing, have a little think about how I'm changing and what the next month might be, come back down, get back to my desk and early morning swims in rivers and just trying to squeeze pockets of wilderness in around our busy and often urban lives. It's interesting how that comes up. Like if you if you advocate a certain lifestyle, then sometimes you can realize that you aren't living it. I know that that um, you know I'm, when I'm not traveling, I'm often based in, in in rural Kansas, and sometimes I'll realize that I haven't varied my driving route on the way for groceries in a long time, <laughs> and so I'll intentionally drive down a street that I haven't seen before out of guilt as uh, as much as uh, as adventure. And as a person, like I'm curious to know if if you have like initiatives or structure for people who want to do micro adventures because i will admit that when i read your book i thought and was reading about you sleeping under the stars in spain i thought to myself i'm gonna go sleep 
out on my deck or out, out in my field tonight so I can look at the stars. And I just didn't. I just, I just fell asleep in my wonderful, comfortable bed that I bought three month, three uh, years ago. <laughs> so for people, and again, for people who are listening right now and love the idea of micro-adventures but sometimes find life getting in the way, is there a way, maybe like the Google Alerts, that you encourage people to give a little bit of uh, urgency and structure to their micro-adventures? Well, it's a, a few things. So one thing I really try and encourage is work out what's stopping you and then try and find a smaller version. And then if something, if you're still not doing it, find a smaller version. So it's about trying to find tiny, tiny, tiny little manifestations of adventure so that you actually do it, realize, hey, that wasn't too hard. I enjoyed it. You get some momentum and do slightly bigger things. Um, so I think just trying to aim smaller and smaller and smaller is good. I mean, I've written countless blog posts on my website trying to tackle all these things there's quite a few frequently asked question sections like what do i need will i get attacked by a sheep all these sort of <laughs> things i try i try to write about and then and i tried to put a lot of uh, videos on youtube of micro adventure ideas that they're specific you know i've done them close to where i live but i deliberately try to do them so that people anyone could do them wherever they happen to live um and then i've written a book about micro adventures as well so but the idea really is just find the thing that excites you work out what's stopping you and then find something smaller until you eventually can overcome that barrier and get started awesome have you, have you ever been surprised uh or delighted by a micro adventure that a, that a reader shares with you oh it's it's become one of the real rewarding things of my working life because the big adventure stuff i've been doing has been wonderful but it's been inherently selfish and quite pointless and i've been very aware of that and so it's beginning to encourage people to go turn off their phones and sleep on a hill for nights has been a really rewarding thing just from the frequency of emails i get from people for whom it's helped them when they're stressed at work or depressed or having troubles at home or finding a better way to connect with their kids, just getting out into the outdoors. So it's just been a, a general wave of people saying, I really wanted to have adventures, but I couldn't because real life got in the way. Thank you for validating this small thing and making it feel like it is an adventure. Well, keeping in mind that we're almost out of time here, I'm sure that there's a lot of uh, you know people driving to work now or, or at the gym and they're listening to this and they're, they're sort of, entranced by the idea of a micro adventure or the idea of busking maybe maybe their maybe their micro adventure could be busking but um what would you tell somebody who's considering it but not sure about how this attitude how the how the micro adventure initiative can improve their life well micro adventure or big adventure i've met many 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 people who've done something adventurous in their lives and i've never met any of them who say they regret it but i have met quite a lot of people who have regrets about adventures they did not take so i think if there's even an urge then i'd suggest you start with a small little version of it and you know you might absolutely hate it which is also a good thing because then you can just eliminate that from your life and think well i thought i liked adventure uh, actually, I don't. And that's a great thing because then you can get on and find the next thing you do in life. But you'll never know unless you try it. So find a ridiculously small version of what you aspire towards and so small that you can do it by this weekend. And, and then everything starts to build from that, I think. Mm -hmm.
This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Alistair's new book, My Midsummer Morning, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Mm-hmm.